Hi and welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast for Week 12. I'm Mark Simon, joined today by SIS VP of Football, Matt Manitarian. Hello. And SIS Lead Football Analyst, Alex Vigderman. Greetings. Let's start with this, a big takeaway from each of you for Week 11. Matt, start us off. I'll give you more than one. First off, we talked about Chris Jones and how he needed to move back inside. Him playing on the inside and causing an absolute ruckus. That was number one. Another one, year after year, we talk about Tyron Smith being one of the most impactful players with or without you in the NFL. The Cowboys with him, really good on offense. Without him, the holes start to show up really fast. I saw Elijah Moore in person. I was absolutely blown away by him. So for all the misery Jets fans can endure, Elijah Moore is the truth. And I thought that Trevor Simeon might have made Jameis Winston some money with his poor performance. But once again, it was Taysom Hill getting paid. That was a lot of big, uh, a lot of takeaways. Uh, Alex, what do you got? What's your one? Mine is that Jonathan Taylor has has really arrived. Uh, his monster game obviously was big for fantasy, but also lived up to that in terms of real world value. Typically, when you see big rushing days, they're not as much a factor of, of real EPA production. It's more of like a volume thing. And design runs are as often as not a negative EPA type of play. Just this year, there have been 18 games when a back carried the ball 25 times. And of those 18, only five of them produced a total EPA that was positive. Uh, three of those five were Derrick Henry, and one of the one of them was this Taylor game. Not only that, his rushing EPA in in that game against the Bills was more than the total of those three Derrick Henry games. So it was far and away the most productive rushing EPA game we've had this year. Uh, for what it's worth, total points, which obviously takes the the EPA and distribute it, distributes it among the important people involved, tells a similar story in terms of his value relative to other high volume games. If we include last year as well, he now owns the top two spots in rushing points earned in a single game uh, among players who had 25 carries in a game. Uh, the other one was in week 17 of last year. Besides those two games, the next six slots belong to Derrick Henry, just for entertainment. And I think a really key thing that, that you, you touched on there, Alex, is the difference between EPA and rushing yards or fantasy points for running backs. EPA, you have to be really efficient. Getting you 25 carries isn't just going to do that. So when you're talking about these high-volume games where you're producing that kind of, of value above average, you're really creating a lot of value. Yeah, especially especially in the running game where, like I said, the, the expected value is basically negative. So one thing we thought we'd do this week is talk about total points and EPA and all these different things, but not everybody has a full handle on what they mean. So we picked a key play from last week, in this case, a Derek Carr fumble and return that was uh, nearly brought to the end zone. Alex Vigderman is going to break it down for us, accounting for all the different players on the field. Yeah, so there was a play. It was not a a super impactful play in terms of the game result because the game was sort of out of hand at that point. But in, in the Raiders game, Uh, This past week, Derek Carr gets sacked and there's a fumble and it gets brought all the way back to basically the the goal line. And we wanted to just sort of go through what goes into total points evaluation of that play and all the different players involved. So we'll start up front with the offensive line Uh, on a passing play, just sort of like a clean blocking play. We typically just give the average EPA of a play where basically nothing remarkable happens on the offensive line. And that's about sort of 0.02 expected points added split five ways. So it's a very small amount just for sort of showing up as an offensive lineman. Uh, But the, the left tackle Colton Miller ends up blowing a block there. 
and he gets dinged a little less than like three quarters of a, of a point of EPA. And that's basically the ex expectation of how likely he would have been to blow a block in that situation. And then also taking that into account with the average value of a blown block in that situation. Right. So basically what you're saying is the whole offensive line for most offensive plays, they show up, they get uh, credit basically for, for not screwing up unless they do screw up, in which case the value of that screw up, not individually on that play, but kind of generally compared to similar plays is the amount that, that they're going to get dinged for that screw up. So in the, in the range of how much you can get dinged for a screw up, where does 0.75, three quarters of a point in this case for this offensive lineman, where does that like rank? Is that yeah, a lot? That's, that's, a, that's a great question. It is quite high on the scale of things that aren't turnovers. And we'll talk about that over the course of this play. Like things that, that change possession are obviously huge deals, but in terms of, of situations that don't change possession, a blown block is as big as, as you tend to see. And we're talking about, you know, we talk about blown blocks a lot. We're talking about only, you know, 5%, 3% of plays uh, where, where this kind of thing happens. So it's a small uh, likelihood, but it is a relatively big impact. Well, I love that because blocking matters and uh, a blown block. When we talk about that, we're not talking about, you know, a pressure that capped four seconds into the play. We're talking about getting immediately beaten by the defensive player that you're trying to block in a way that impacts the play. And so it makes sense to me that it has that sort of a chain reaction on the play, right? If you blow a block immediately, all of a sudden, the expectation for what your quarterback's going to be able to do it should look pretty different. So I don't know. Maybe that's a good segue, Alex. Yeah. So let, yeah. So let's talk about that. So from, uh, just just to sort of mirror things first on the defensive line, basically the same calculation occurs where the defensive front gets sort of a baseline level of performance. But the guy who forces the blown block, who ends up being Trey Hendrickson, he uh, is lined up outside, forces the blown block, and he gets basically the inverse of that value for himself. And that blown block ripples into sort of both sides of the ball. So the defensive backs get a little bit of a penalty, essentially, because they were in a situation where they were covering where the quarterback was was pressured based on the, the blown block. And it's an easier coverage responsibility. Exactly. And Derek Carr and the receivers are given a little bit of a boost because the offensive line put them in a tough spot. And so in that situation, Derek Carr gets like, three tenths of a point of EPA and the receivers split roughly the same amount between them. And that's basically to represent that the situation is not likely to work out well for the offense on average, but it wasn't the responsibility as much of the offensive or, or of the skill position players and of the quarterback. And we want to represent that by taking that blown block value and sort of giving it back in inverse to the other offensive players. Before we move forward here, You've, you've talked about the offensive linemen. We're now moving on to the quarterback and the receivers and essentially the compensation that they get for what happened. Um, but I'm wondering, is there an equivalent for what the offensive linemen did uh, for the quarterback and the receiver or the a running back or whoever? Just is, is that like, is the offensive lineman blowing a block the equivalent of a guy dropping a pass that hits him right in the numbers? In terms of value, it can be. We do, in the case of drops, have specific examples of this was a drop on third and nine, and it was 10 yards downfield and therefore prevented a first down. And so in the case of a drop, you have more variability in the amount of value that, that could move around in that case. But it is very similar where one player gets penalized and other players are sort of treated differently as a result of that one player failing. So in the case of a drop, 
a receiver will lose value and the quarterback will be treated as though the pass was completed, essentially ignoring the negative result of the play because he did his job. And so it's, it's not quite identical, but it is similar in the sense that we're using one person's uh, poor performance and taking that and changing our understanding of how other players performed. So uh, moving on to the, the rest of the players involved, let's talk about the skill position players. Not much happens from their perspective on this play because the play ends up being a sack, but the, all of the coverage players and all of the skill position players are evaluated in terms of how likely they are to have the ball thrown in their direction. And then also correspondingly, how much value we would have expected from a target in that situation. How, how do you do that? Yeah, so it, we take an understanding of how likely a player is to be targeted on either side of the ball using uh, where they were aligned, the coverage scheme, the type of route they were running, what uh, position they are generally. And we use that to, to get essentially the average target rate for a player in that situation. And each player is evaluated in that way. And we give an EPA value that's basically that, that expectation and whether or not you were targeted are combined to make what is essentially a plus minus system. We use this in, in baseball as well in defensive run saved, where we say, if you had a 20% chance of being targeted and you do get targeted, we'll give you 0.8 credit, one minus 0.2. And if you don't get targeted, you'll get minus 0.2, uh, which is, you know, you didn't get targeted minus that 0.2 expectation. So for each of the players in this play, for example, nobody gets targeted. So everybody kind of gets dinged a little bit. And it's multiplied by this sort of average value of a target that we'd expect from a person aligned like that. Because of the situation with the blown block, everyone gets moved more because of that than because of anything related to this target stuff, because the offense was put in a bad situation, defense was put in a good situation, and that really moves the needle more in terms of individual player value than not getting targeted or getting targeted, especially on a play where no one gets targeted at all because the quarterback gets sacked. And for all my true football people out there who are afraid of math, football is a very complicated interdependent sport, and Alex is discussing a lot of the complexities that you look at um, and just kind of putting some math behind it. This is kind of like Planet Money or uh, Radio Lab for football, um, where we're trying to take something that is pretty complicated and trying to make it uh, a little simpler for everybody. And there's a lot of moving parts. I've started to make a list here of all the things like to try and recap at the end. What else? What else you got, Alex? Yeah. So, so we've gotten to the point where uh, the offensive lineman blew a block and. Derek Carr's in trouble. And what's about to happen is that he's about to get sacked. He's going to drop the ball. It's going to get picked up and it's going to get run back for nearly a touchdown. So those pieces are actually separate from our perspective in our evaluation. So the first part is the sack, which is basically the value of the change in yardage between where you started and where the sack occurs. So in this case, he loses eight yards on the sack. It goes from second and 14 to what would have been a third and 22. And so the value of the sack in that situation is the difference in expected points between those two states. And that ends up getting given to Trey Hendrickson, who ends up making the sack and gets taken away from Derek Carr, who got sacked. Now, in the case of Carr, he did get a little bit of a boost because of the blown block occurred. So he's not really getting full penalty for that sack there because the offensive line did a poor job in that situation. It's not his fault. Yeah, it's 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 not his fault, but we well, do recognize that 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 sacks are a quarterback stat. To, if we, to to put it, you know, simply. Yeah, and no, so Mark, this, I, I would yeah. correct what you said is saying it's not not his fault. It's that the the reason why he got credit to begin with 
was because he was overwhelmingly likely to lose that credit. So that actually really when he earned the credit is when if he would was to escape this the sack, that would be the the positive result would have been already sort of attributed there. Yeah, that's an interesting way of framing it. Yeah. If 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 that's Wait, is it like seven, a refund? <laughs> sort of. Yeah, it's sort of like that. If 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 Derek Carr successfully gets out of that situation and makes that turns that play into an average play, whereas he sort of came from a negative expectation, then that's basically him performing really well. And therefore it'll get represented from a total points perspective. But because the the blown block put him into a, a situation where the play is expected to be below average, then the sack doesn't quite look as bad because he was kind of in a negative state to begin with. This was a funny thing that happened during the Super Bowl. Patrick Mahomes faced so much blown block pressure in that game that when you looked at it, his stats for the game by, by a total point standpoint weren't bad because he actually did much better than you would have expected a quarterback to do, given that he was basically on his back the whole game. And this is a situation in, in that kind of game, you end up with total points. It looks kind of weird. And the, the big problem is you don't see what would have happened if there weren't those blown blocks. And so it looks really odd because you see a game in which the offense looked terrible, but the blown blocks change the dynamic of each play so much that it's hard to, to think about like what it would have looked like if that hadn't have happened. All right. So a whole bunch of different things have happened here. We talked about the linemen, the quarterback, the wide receivers, the other skilled players, everything that's going on. There's a maze of things that are going on related to this play. Bring it to the defensive side, Alex. Yeah. So Trey Hendrickson gets the sack. We talked about the the points that are going to him. Then uh, the fumble gets recovered. And that is basically, so we, one thing we do in this system is evaluate fumbles as a probabilistic thing. Fumbles are basically 50, 50 propositions in terms of whether they get recovered or not. So when car fumbles there, there's a value to the, the fumble, which is basically just the change in expected points from if he has the ball in that spot versus if the defense has the ball in that spot. And that value is like four points, but because it's basically a 50, 50 shot as to whether or not it gets recovered, car only loses half of that, which is still two points of EPA, but it's, it's not quite as, as much as you'd expect. Uh, similarly, when Sam Hubbard ends up recovering it, he gets two expected points added himself. It's basically the, the complement to that uh, two points. And then when he returns it all the way back close to the end zone, all of that value goes to him, which is basically the change in expected points from where he picked it up to where he ended up getting tackled. So there's like 97 different things going on here. Let's, let's simplify. The play happens. Derek Carr fumbles the football because a guy blew a block. What happens to Derek Carr? Yeah, so he receives about three-tenths of a point for, for the blown block, and then negative two, it's like negative one for the sack and negative two for the fumble. So he ends up getting like negative three points uh, on that in, in total. And then the offensive lineman who screwed things up and feels terrible. Uh, that seven-tenths that we, we talked about at the beginning, the, the average value of a blown block. Okay. Does anyone else on the field have anything significant happen to them? No, it's basically, well, I mean, it's the two defensive guys, right? Hendrickson who gets the sack and the forced fumble and then, uh, and, and then Hubbard who ends up recovering it and returning it. And then we repeat this for every single play that happens in every NFL game for the entire season. And all of this comes together. We get total points we get all the different things that we produce. Matt, what's the last word on this? The last word is that I, you know, I think it's the best system for, for trying to quantify uh, the unquantifiable. There's so many moving parts, like you said. And so basically, Total Points looks at every play as a sort of set of chain reactions. And as you move from each moment of the play, 
to another, you're seeing how the value is gained and lost. And the total points reflects that. For more on this, we'll put the link to the total points trimmer that Alex wrote a couple of years ago into the show notes. Check it out because it'll give you a, a detailed explanation of how we compute total points. So before we go to week 12 games, I want to talk about Corey March's football newsletter and the total points stat pack. Those are both things that we offer free. You can get them uh, by emailing off the charts at sportsinfosolutions.com for more. Did you info. say free? I did. Or you can follow the links in the show notes that will take you to where you can sign up for those. Corey's football newsletter offers a variety of tips, thoughts for fantasy. It's uh, fantasy and gambling oriented. The total points stat pack takes essentially the sum of everything that we just talked about uh, related to how we evaluate different players on the field, and it ranks players out. It ranks teams out. It shows you how teams rank in the head-to-head for the upcoming week. So, for example, you might have a game this week, which we do, featuring the number one pass coverage defense and the number 32 pass coverage defense, and the number 32 team is going up against a team, the Bucs, that rank among the top teams in total points passing, as we know, certainly with Tom Brady. So you can uh, check those out, as Matt pointed out. Free! On to week 12. So at my old home ESPN, there was a headline asking if the Patriots were now the best team in the AFC. As we look at Titans Pats to start things off, let's come up with somewhat of a pecking order here. Alex, where do the Patriots stand? Yeah, so we're working on building out our suite of win probability calculations and decision-making assistance and all those sorts of things. And one element of that is maintaining a team strength measure. And that uses expected points added and some defensive adjustments and, and uh, you know, opponent team strength and that sort of thing. And what we have heading into week 12, the Patriots are second behind the Colts, oddly, um, with the Bills, Chiefs, and Titans just behind. Uh, that The fact that the Colts are at the top is sort of a combination of the system favoring offensive ratings, which is good for the Colts, also bad for teams like Buffalo and New England. Um, and the Colts have done pretty well against some of the better teams in the NFL, including thrashing the Bills last week. If the, the reason for discussing, you know, who, which team is the best is to start sort of projecting them into the postseason, I think that the Titans might be a, as good of a pick as the Patriots here, just because their injury situation is so dire. Um, I think that they're a much bigger threat, you know, six weeks from now than they are right now. But in terms of, of right this moment, yeah, I think that the Pats are as, as good of a team as you have in the AFC. In fact, by the total points power rankings, the Patriots uh, and the Bills are, are the two top, uh, the Bills and the Patriots, rather, are the two top uh, AFC teams. Matt, is there something that could particularly hold the Patriots back? Yeah, I, you know, I think that they've been performing great. They smashed the Browns, you know, right after I said that I thought the Browns were basically a better version of them. But the limited vertical passing game, the limited of, of speed on the offense to really get the ball down the field, I think that's that's a limiting factor at a certain point. And when you play as conservatively as the Patriots do, you know, they're, they're one of the uh, most conservative decision-making teams on, on fourth down decisions and the like. I think it becomes really hard to beat the great teams that way when you start to get into January and you're, and you're really competing uh, with the teams that are actual contenders. I think that, that that sort of thing can can do you well when you're kind of beating up on different opponents. Um, but when it, when it really gets tough, I think that, you know, if you want to go toe-to-toe with, the Chiefs, for example, I, I think that uh, playing more aggressively, um, it just becomes hard to win this whole tournament by playing conservative every week. 
if you're playing sort of the equivalent of small ball and not being aggressive and not pushing the ball downfield, it re- you're relying on being successful consistently in a way that you can't necessarily rely on when things get a little tighter, when defenses get better, that sort of thing. Yeah, like as, what I'm talking about is if they get into a situation where a team gets ahead of them and all of a sudden they're not playing from ahead on defense like they have been for the last, what, seven weeks of the season, and all of a sudden you're getting into a situation where you've got to keep up with somebody – uh, I don't know if they're really well suited to do that because this isn't a team that once they have to get into kind of their spread offense mode, I don't think they have a lot of answers in the drop back passing game. We, we took Patriots. Let's talk Titans. Let's revisit last week for a second because it's instructive to what we just talked about earlier. Alex wanted to talk about Ryan Tanhill's interception in Texans territory in the first game and the first quarter of that game last week that uh, surprising Texans win. Uh, what did you want to bring up? Yeah, so a sur- surprising win in which they, you know, lost by nine points to a team that did not, you know, nobody expected that to be happening. And there's just one play that basically drives the result of the game, even a game that's that's decided by as many points as that was. Uh, at the end of the first quarter, the Titans end up having a, a third and six just inside the red zone. Tannehill tries to hit A.J. Brown over the middle, doesn't see a linebacker coming over, throws a pick that gets returned all the way down towards the goal line. Um, obviously in a very real sense, that's like a six point swing. They lost the opportunity to kick a field goal. They put the opposing team in a situation to kick a field goal, but in terms of actual EPA on that play, it ends up being more like eight and and a little bit more than eight points and they lost by nine. So like that one play is a huge deal. Uh, but also just in terms of like evaluating the team, evaluating the player plays like that show just how sort of like on a razor's edge, both player and team stats are with, with those kinds of plays. Um, Tannehill didn't have a great game otherwise, but, but given that they only put up 13 points in total, one play that's worth eight expected points is a huge proportion of the, of the total offensive production. And even if it is just one play, it has a huge impact. That, and that play changes the perception of how we perceive him for that game. Yeah. Uh, if you look certain- at it from an expected point standpoint, and to be clear, Alex is talking expected points different than total points, right? Expected yeah. points would be the full team stat. Yeah, that's a great point. So from an expected points perspective, it ends up being eight points. In, from a total points perspective, it ends up being more like two or three because he's not getting uh, dinged for basically the full extent of, of the interception return. And actually, he makes a, a great effort in trying to make a tackle, you know, not Teddy Bridgewater like uh, on, on the way back towards the end zone. So, you know, if he makes that tackle, I suppose it works out a lot better for the team. But uh, yeah, total points will, will give him less of a, of a ding for that. And, you know, working with EPA is just tough because we want to account for situations. We want to acknowledge that certain plays are more important than others. But we also don't want to go the full other direction and say this play was worth nine points and it basically just totally crushes a guy's game and to some extent sort of changes his whole season because that's really just an outsized value for a single play. So this is a, this is a Titans team whose quarterback has a touchdown to interception ratio of 13 to 12 that has lost to the Jets and lost to the Texans. They don't have one of the best players in the league because he's hurt. Could come back, as you said, different teams six weeks from now. But what do we make of them right now, Matt? Well, I'll start with the positives. I think that they're a tough team. I think that they, they really have won a lot of games so far this year in the image of their coach who wants to uh, play tough guy football. He wants to win up front. Um, and he wants to challenge you from, uh, from a sort of game theory perspective as well. He really um, kind of puts the pedal to the metal and makes teams compete on his level, which, which I really appreciate. This defense is much better than they were last year. 
Um, they were absolutely atrocious last year, and they really have started to beat some people up front. I heard Nate Cooper on the podcast last week talking about Harold Landry, who's definitely uh, stepped up for them. We've talked about Bayard on the back end for them and what, and what he's meant. But at the end of the day, without Henry, I have long been openly concerned about Ryan Tannehill. Last week he was bad. I think he looked like the win in spite of type of quarterback that we've talked about, right? Not win because of, not even win with, but you have to win a Super Bowl in spite of Ryan Tannehill. And that's really what I think that he is. Maybe with Derrick Henry in a good defense, that's enough to do it. I don't think this Titans team is good enough to win a Super Bowl in spite of him. Has a team ever won a Super Bowl in spite of a quarterback? Well, my favorite example is uh, Trent Dilfer. I knew, uh, okay, I knew you were going to bring that up. That's my favorite one because uh, it's literally become a verb. Dilfering a Super Bowl for me is basically that action there. But Peyton Manning Dilfered his second Super Bowl win for sure um, when he was just a shell of himself physically and basically was an offensive coordinator on the field uh, without much of an ability to throw the ball. But there is, there is precedent for, and obviously there's not, this is not something you can project, but there is precedent for Joe Flacco and Nick Foles being guys who were, who would have probably been characterized as win in spite of quarterbacks at, at times in their career, but they spike a few weeks of they had awesome a great performance. Game. Yeah. Legitimately yeah. awesome performance. Right. And, you know, Tannehill is definitely in, in that class of quarterback. I can tell you from being um, in some scouting departments uh, at the time when Flacco was, was playing his best football that there were lots of debates and really the opinions at the time would run anywhere from him being a win in spite of guy to him being a win because of guy. Um, there were really divergent opinions. I know the, the, you know, the whole elite thing, we always, you know, doing the media or whatever, but um, that was a real thing in scouting departments. And, you know, I think it kind of shook out that he was probably a win with quarterback for a little bit there. Um, certainly isn't that anymore. We're in number 19, but um, Nick Foles, I would say, uh, that was more of a damn Yankees type of situation. <laughs> Joe Flacco now polarizing people in a completely different way. What is the highest watchability for this game, Alex? Uh, I definitely watch out for Pat's edge rusher, Matt Judon, uh, especially when he's rushing from the right side of the Titans offensive line. Uh, he generally lines up over there, although he does go on, on either side. He's second to only Miles Garrett in total pressures this year. Already has a career high with 10 and a half sacks. Titans right tackle David Quesenberry has the second most blown blocks at right tackle this year. But I mean, most of that is he's just played there a bunch. He's been pretty okay, actually, as a, as a uh, pass blocker. More of his blown blocks sort of proportionally have come in the running game. But he's definitely beatable. And for a guy like Judon, who's having a great year so far, that's definitely something to watch. Tannehill's going to be seeing a lot of red sleeves in his future. <laughs> <laughs> More win, uh, potential to win in spite of him this week, too, I guess. Rams Packers, let's move on. Rams have lost two in a row. They added Odell Beckham, but he wasn't much of a factor in the loss to the 49ers. The Rams only had the ball for 21 minutes in that game. Stafford's been picked twice in each of the last two. Packers D held the Cardinals, Chiefs, and Seahawks to a combined 34 points, then gave up 34 to the Vikings. They got chopped up by Kirk Cousins. Let's start with the Rams. Uh, Matt, what's their biggest pain point right now? Yeah, for the Rams, it's been running the ball and stopping the run. For as much as we like to talk about this being a passing league, um, and then they bring in the good quarterback and they started to really feel good, great wins to start the year. Since then, they've played nobody for a month, and I think that they got a little bit too far away from their previous Sean McVay identity. Um, and really, that's been built on starting with the running game and building out the play action from there and having the ability to control the football game and not just put points on the board. 
So I think it comes back to running the ball and stopping the run and not to say that they need to, you know, go back to the 1990s in the way that they play football, but, but establishing a little bit more of, of their previous identity, I think would be a, a smart move for them because it's, it's clearly gotten away from them. And now that they've played a couple of teams that came in with, Hey, we're going to run the ball and stop the run against them. They've seen what it's like to be in one of these games where the other teams really maybe not controlling the, the scoreboard as much as controlling the football game. Um, and that can be a problem. So, I think that needs to be flipped. I think the good news is it's a long season and I'm really not concerned about it. I think that they can get back on the right foot. The key thing that I think they're going to need to figure out is going to be how to play without Robert Woods. Robert Woods, obviously a key part of their offense, not Cooper Cup, but you know, right there with them. And the way that they've used those receivers and used them in the blocking game for years and years, all those tight, nasty splits, it's a lot of the sort of stuff that you would not feel great about asking Odell Beckham Jr. to do. Um, so this is not a situation where they're going to be able to sub one guy out, bring somebody else in and just say, you're going to fill that role. They're going to have to figure out how the roles are going to get shuffled around in their receiver corps to make sure that they can, uh, create a new productive offense. Because, um, I, I really don't think this is as simple as sub that guy out, sub this guy in, we're good to go. I think they're going to have to figure out how to play without somebody that they're accustomed to playing with. Sub this guy out, sub this guy in. You saw it last week uh, with the 49ers uh, that it didn't uh, work out well for them. Speaking of pain, the, the Packers lose Elton uh, Jenkins for the season. David Bakhtiari already out. He says he hopes to come back in December. Aaron Rodgers is playing through a toe injury. The Packers defense, which has been very good, just gave up 34 to the Vikings and Kirk Cousins. Alex, what should we be thinking of the, uh, what should we be thinking of the Packers right now? Well, I think the the stretch of defensive excellence from the team was a bit of a mirage. Uh, They got games against teams who were, you know, good offensive teams, Seattle and Kansas City, who just were in nadirs of their seasons. And so, uh, and they used some turnovers to hold Arizona to a respectable total. And with Jair Alexander hurt, Zadarius Smith out for a while, uh, that defense is really more average than what they appeared to show during that run. So you don't you don't give them credit for shutting down the Chiefs? I give them credit. I think that the Chiefs at times this year have beaten themselves. Um, and, and, and it's not as though I, I think based on the fact that that they also faced these other team, the Packers, I should say, they also faced these other teams who were either not particularly good offenses or at the time just were not like the, the Seahawks are looking totally lost offensively. And so we just have to acknowledge that, that the situations in which they've played some of these teams that are typically good offenses were pretty ideal for, for having a, a nice defensive performance against them. Um, and they've had some injuries and, you know, if those guys come back, I think I have a lot more confidence in that defense, but right now they're much more average than anything. And our uh, team strength estimate I mentioned earlier has them as the 10th best defense. And that, you know, that calculation doesn't know that the Seahawks were working in a situation where Russell Wilson was clearly hampered in that game. Matt, what has the highest watchability for this game? Yeah, I love it when we do this segment because I, I, I prepare myself for where I'm actually going to be focused as I, as I watch the games on Sunday or as I review the film. So this one, I'm focused a lot on all the different moving parts, whether that be because of players that are injured or players that are newly acquired. So when the Packers have the ball, you want to focus your eyes on the left side of their offensive line. No Elton Jenkins, no Bakhtiari. Hopefully they get Bakhtiari back soon. It's been unbelievable. You know, you heard Coop and John Todd earlier in the season telling you Elton Jenkins was going to be just fine uh, being able to slide out to left tackle. Now they're going to have to really find a way to get it done with neither of those guys this week. 
I think that against the number one pass rush in the league, obviously Aaron Donald, et cetera, uh, protecting Aaron Rodgers and his COVID toe will be a problem. And just to clarify, Aaron Rodgers does not have COVID toe, at least according to Aaron Rodgers. On the other side of the ball, when the Rams have the ball, all eyes on ODB, Odell Beckham Jr. Um, they have to find a way to use him differently than Robert Woods. As I was mentioning before, this is not the same player. This is not somebody who likes to get physical on the inside, much more of a, of a pure outside threat in terms of what Beckham brings there. So I'm very curious to see how they deploy. What does it do to Van Jefferson? What does it do to Cooper Cup? Good news for them. No Jair Alexander, so it's a much easier task. Our third game, Odell Beckham's former team, Browns-Ravens, and we should point out the oddity here. They played this week on Sunday night. The Ravens then played the Steelers next week, but the Browns are off. And then the Browns and Ravens play again two weeks from now. So it winds up that the Browns play the same team in back-to-back games. And let's start with the Browns because they've looked so bad these last two weeks. And yet, with the middle of the AFC such a mess, they're a half game out of the wild card, all three spots. In five of their last six, they've scored 17 or fewer. Matt, you've talked about Baker Mayfield before. I feel like we've talked about him a lot on this podcast. He's got a bunch of injuries. He's playing through them. What does this offense and team need to do to get better? Well, before I talk about Baker, the offense, I, I will start with the team and say their secondary has been trashola, and they need to get healthier on the back end as well as just play better there. But The health of Baker Mayfield is definitely a good place to start. He hasn't been healthy, and his physical limitations have been showing up. He is not a Patrick Mahomes to begin with. He's not Josh Allen. This is somebody who already had some physical limitations. Now he's unhealthy, and you're seeing it exacerbated. Uh, That said, I think just like we look at Tannehill and his performance without Derrick Henry, the real key for the Browns might be Nick Chubb. I could give you all of his individual stats, the broken tackles, the yards after contact. We know he's an absolute stud as a ball carrier. But I want to focus on how much better the Browns offense has been with him on the field as opposed to off of it. How much better have they been with him uh, with him than without him? So first thing we did is that we just stripped out third downs here just to look at first and second downs, so that we're not getting any EPA-based weirdness because third downs are such sort of different plays. So looking at it the same way that NFL teams do, what are we doing on first and second down specifically? The Browns are seven expected points added per 60 plays, so about a game's worth with him compared to without him. Within that, there are three expected points added per 60 plays rushing better than they would be without him, and 11 EPA per 60 plays better with him in the passing game than they would be without him. That's 11 more passing points per game based on him being on the field than off of it. So the truth is that he makes a big difference for their running game, but the Browns have depth in their backfield. They've got other guys they can sub in there who do a pretty good job. What his backups don't do is put the fear into the opponent the way that he does, the way that Derrick Henry does, and it's affected the passing game, at least it has for the Browns so far this year. When you take it a a step further and you look at just Baker Mayfield's stats, right? What has he done first and second down passing with and without Nick Chubb? 74% of his passes and five TDs with Chubb on the field, 66% complete with two touchdowns without him. So sometimes we frame this this running back debate, running backs don't matter, play action doesn't matter, Uh, you don't need to run the ball well to have play action. But quantifying the threat that Chubb is, is not just about whether or not you fake the handoff to him, It shows through just by him being on the field, right? I talked about Tyron Smith at the top of the podcast. The effect of of Tyron Smith, the effect of Derrick Henry, the effect of Nick Chubb 
you can't ignore that there's a really real effect with these guys, and it comes right back into making Baker Mayfield's job easier or more difficult. And this is kind of scouts and stats working, or eye tests and stats working hand in hand, what you see and what, and what the numbers show, right? To an extent, it's also because we don't just trust stats because football is so complicated. And as you know, Alex can make the best formulas in the world. And there's still going to be stuff that we can't capture in, in all of that because there's just so many moving parts and interrelated things going on. But if we look at the individual stats, they tell us something that's, that's uh, based on the eye test and based on more advanced statistics than just yards and touchdowns. And then on top of that, we look at the team level stats and we see, wow, there is a real effect based on when we have this player and when we don't have this player, all of a sudden we're starting to pile up evidence. So maybe it's not just uh, the scouts versus the stats. Maybe, uh, you know, as I think certain NFL teams like to do, if you think of the analyst as one of your opinions, just like you think of the scouts as another one of your opinions that, that you bring in and you're trying to merge all of these decision-making, uh, all these tools towards decision-making together, all of, all of this data, all of this uh, information uh, I think it's really good when you have uh, the eye test, not just the eye test matching the stats, but when you look at stats in different ways and you see a, a coherent picture, I think that's very meaningful. Speaking of coherent picture, Alex, can you sort out the AFC wildcard picture for us? Is there a team you feel good about besides the Chiefs and the Pats? The short answer is no. Um, there's just been way too little consistency among the teams that we would be talking about. Last time I was on, I talked at the top of the podcast about how the best teams or the people, the teams we thought were the best teams have been changing all the time during the season. That's kind of also been true for the teams sort of in that tier or two below half of the AFC is between five and five and six and four, basically. Um, We've seen better stretches in the past from teams like the Ravens and the Bills, so I guess those would be my first two picks, Uh, but they've got troubling losses on both of their resumes. If you're looking at things like point differential or DVOA from Football Outsiders, the Bills are an interesting option, but I'm not sure how much you trust those metrics when that's a team that has a 146 to 28 point differential in four games against the Dolphins, Jets, and Texans. But also they just lost to the Jaguars two weeks ago and got destroyed by the Colts. So it's just a, a weird collection of results for all of these teams. And if we want to, you know, trust offenses and quarterbacks over defenses, I guess that that sort of disqualifies the bills to some extent uh, because they've been so much better on defense than on offense. The Chargers and Colts are interesting. I mentioned the Colts earlier. They're both doing their offenses very differently from each other, but they both have some balance on offense, uh, something that has at times been trouble for teams like the Chiefs and the Bills. And both of those teams have you know, passable enough defenses. Sounds like a mess, Matt. Yeah, well, I, I, I resent the question because I've been staying on the Chiefs <laughs> as, they, as they went through their hard It was times. purposely built <laughs> to spite you. <laughs> so aside from the chiefs and the Patriots, yes, I think I came out with the, mostly the same teams as Alex there. I like the bills, the Ravens, the Browns, and the chargers. Those would be my four, you know, if those are the seven, the seven playoff team, and then I'd have the Colts in there as well. I think their best path to the postseason would be overtaking the Titans in the AFC South. Um, but I think with all of these teams, like, like Alex said, there are bright spots and there are flaws with each of them. But, uh, you know, there really are things to like. There really are ways that you can see it coming together, right? The Bills, if Josh Allen starts to look more like last year's Josh Allen and they get it together in the running game, that defense has been downright scary at certain times this year. It's been impossible to drop off, drop back to pass against them. Um, there's lots of, you know, Ravens, you're talking about Lamar Jackson. The Browns, if they can get healthy, 
all the talent that they have all over their roster. Uh, the Chargers, I, you know, every time I compliment Justin Herbert, then he seems to take a step back. But I'm not backing off of it anymore. I think the guy is special. I don't care who's calling plays for him. So I really think there are things to like with each of these teams. And, and just don't forget about the Colts because they're, they're sneaking up kind of as, as bad as their record got earlier in the year. This is a team that I really believe in um, kind of their roster. And I think that they had a lot of misfortune. I think they lost two overtime games early. So there, there are some bright spots. And I think any of those teams could really be contenders. Speaking of feeling good, Lamar Jackson says he felt better after missing last week's game. The Ravens won last week without him, barely. If we look at the non-Jackson elements of the Ravens, since it's probably going to play, but we don't necessarily know for sure this week, how should we feel about uh, the, the Ravens? I feel like we should feel better than we do. Um, after kind of floundering around with their receiving core over the last couple of years, Marquise Brown has taken a little bit of a step forward this year, and Rashad Bateman's arrival has given them sort of a legitimate trio of pass catchers, adding in Mark Andrews as well. Um, the three of them have basically the same production in terms of yards and routes run since Bateman came on a few weeks ago, although Brown did miss some time. Um, that said, the, the total production of those guys really hasn't reflected like a new and improved offense. They haven't lit it up. You know, maybe it's the Bryce Rossler article curse that, that made Jackson kind of you know, turn for, take a turn for the worse. Uh, their bottom five in, in passing EPA since week six, which is when uh, Bateman came on after being in the top five prior to that. So more than likely, it just means that they're somewhere in the middle. They're, they're neither of those extremes. Um, we know that the running game has not been what we're used to. It's a bunch of old guys rotating through the, the you know, fantasy MVPs of five years ago or whatever you want. Um, they're in the bottom 10 in yards per game from non-quarterbacks. Obviously, Jackson is a big part of the running game. Bottom three in yards after contact per attempt. So the losses of J.K. Dobbins and Gus Edwards at the beginning of the year are really looming large as we see this just sort of rotating cast of characters come through the backfield. It's probably also worth mentioning that the defense is just not you know, it's not a Ravens defense you're used to. They're at best average. And the exception being that they are a pretty stout run defense. They've uh, stuffed the ball carrier for uh, zero or fewer yards, a league leading 28% of the time. That'll be a big deal against a Browns team that can't really rely on its passing game right now and really does want to, to run the ball against you. There's, a, there's no number of running backs that they could lose that I think would have the same impact as losing Marcus Peters. Uh, we knew it at the time, and it was easy thing to kind of forget about but uh, he's, he makes a really big difference back there. They've got some dudes that are straight getting picked on without him in the fold. And, and for watchability from this game, Matt, what do you got? This one, I like to look at my big nasties. You know me. Brown's offensive line has been really good this year. I know those guys got paid, and then they had probably their worst performance of the season. But watch out for the Browns offensive line going up against this beast defensive line. We, you know, Alex mentioned that they haven't been the same special defensive unit that they had been before. But that run defense and those three big bad dudes up front that they have up there are, are uh, this is this is going to be, especially with it being two games in a row for the Browns of having this sort of a matchup, we're going to see some violence on the inside there. So that's that's where I'll be focused because uh, they're not showing me the uh, the coverage schemes well enough on the uh, TV broadcast anyway. So to close the show, let's do a round of scouts versus stats. We'll have some fun here. Make Thanksgiving the theme. I hope your meal is big, but not nasty. Let's start with stats. Uh, Alex, you've got an Aaron Donald food comp. 
I don't have necessarily like a specific food comp in mind, but I, I am thinking if we're talking about getting dishes and we're trying to evaluate what the best meal to have is, one way of doing that is establishing an expectation for each, you know, individual element involved. So maybe you're, you know, obviously the, the, the turkey is a pretty high expectation food. Same thing is true for mashed potatoes, but maybe depending on your vegetables, you might have a little bit of variety there. Maybe you have, you know, Brussels sprouts might not be a, a favor on average, but if they're prepared just right, a little crispy with a little bit of that balsamic or a little bit of sweetness to it, it really accents the rest of the, the rest of the, the dish. And, you know, in general, just in terms of evaluating the different foods involved, you want to make sure that you are evaluating the interaction between players. We talked about that earlier, being able to, to understand that having a bunch of foods that are on like the sweet spectrum, you don't want the sweet potatoes with a sweet cranberry sauce and being able to just sort of, it's a little bit more of a basketball sense than a football sense. I think being able to have to spread the floor, get some balance and have guys that can do different things and can specialize. I think that's important. Matt, what are the keys to a good Thanksgiving dish? I mean, I got to pick up right where Alex left off. This is about complementary dishes. We talk about this in football all the time. We don't want to have this, you know, like high flying passing game. And then we don't have any sort of a run defense. And all of a sudden, yeah, we can, we can score at will, but we can never possess the ball. It's all about having a complementary scheme. So you want to have the turkey with the stuffing, with the cranberries. You want it to all be balanced. You don't want too much in one direction. You know, even what, what Alex is saying, maybe Brussels sprouts are, are a low expectation food. All that's doing is giving them more value above replacement opportunity. So it's not about the individual qualitative dishes. It's about how they all fit together. So that the keys for me, complimentary dishes, gratitude, of course, we're talking about Thanksgiving here, and it's got to be some wine uh, if it's going to be my Thanksgiving. Uh, those are the big three things for me. Don't sleep on Friday. Well, do sleep, but don't sleep on a turkey sandwich on Friday because you want to talk about complimentary. Add that bread to the outside of all those things I was talking about before. Now that's perfect. See, we're in, we're in Pennsylvania. So I just go to Wawa and get the gobbler. I did that yesterday. So I'm, I'm, I'm ahead of the game. Leftovers above replacement. That's where it's at. This wraps up the off the charts podcast for today. You might've noticed that we have a new podcast logo. Thanks to our marketing team for taking care of that. It's always a good time to hit the like or comment button and let your fellow podcast listeners know what you think of off the charts. For Matt Manicharian, Alex Figderman, for whom the food uh, theme at the end was his idea. I'm Mark Simon. Have a happy Thanksgiving, and thank you for listening to the Off the Charts Football Podcast.